Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 7. I have seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. Tonight I want to speak to you on this subject, servants on horses and princes walking. You may be seated. The New Living Translation is similar. I have seen servants riding horseback like princes and princes walking like servants. The authorship of Ecclesiastes is attributed to Solomon, the son of David. He self-identifies himself as the author in Ecclesiastes 1 and 1, the words of the preacher, that's what Ecclesiastes means. The preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. There's an interesting insight into life in Ecclesiastes. Much of it is Solomon seeing life from a non-spiritual perspective, but it is fraught with lessons and insight. And of course, he concludes everything landing on his feet at the end of Ecclesiastes telling us to fear God and keep His commandments and remember your Creator in the days of your youth. The imagery of this verse that we read together tonight has been intriguing to me and prompted me to study this out. And as it turns out, more than I even fathom, there is tremendous insight and application for us in our personal lives and in our culture today. Solomon says, and I'll repeat this verse several times tonight, that I have seen servants... Upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. When I read this verse for the first time recently, I've read the Bible three multiple times, I kind of had a presupposition of what I wanted this verse to mean. Solomon said he saw these times when guys that were normally slaves that had to walk, had no mode of transportation, were riding on horseback. And the princes, the privileged guys, we're having to walk around on the street. Something that was odd to Solomon. And if you read this verse, it's even improper to him. There's something wrong with this. It's bothering Solomon to see servants on horseback and princes walking. To common people like most of us in the room tonight, we probably have a little different feeling. We look at the servant. He spent his life in a subservient role, subordinate to a prince, But look at him now. He's sitting high in the saddle, riding around on horseback, and he's pretty proud to be there. And we kind of cheer that. We applaud the servant who finally got his own horse, right? He's been walking around town, and now he's driving around in a luxury sports car. He has finally arrived. He's made it. He's a servant on horseback. But he may actually look and feel a little awkward because he wasn't raised riding a horse. It's something out of place and unusual in this culture. Look at the prince. He grew up learning how to ride a horse. He was privileged and promised a position of power in his life. He's not uncomfortable on horseback. He's not uncomfortable being in authority, having a position of responsibility, He's been schooled and trained to make good decisions. But now here he is, not by choice, but by circumstances. He's having to walk everywhere he goes. And it is humiliating 
and awkward, his horse has been given to a slave. You think how humiliating it must have been for a prince who's been groomed for a place of position and power to be raised with prestige and be kind of walking around like the common guys having to catch the bus everywhere he goes, sort of. You know, he's, he's on foot now. In our culture, we kind of have the Robin Hood mentality. And when I read this verse by itself, I like this story because it looks like somebody's robbed from the rich and given it all to the poor. You know, the servants have finally gotten the ill-gotten gain of all the rich people in town. It sort of sounds like some of the political talk you hear in our country, how we're going to tax the rich and give it all to the poor, take it away from all these thieves, you know, and give it to all the poor people. We're going to equalize our society. So I look at the servant riding on horseback. We kind of want to applaud him and congratulate him. He's finally made it. And then, you know, when I just read this verse by itself, I, I want to look at the prince and say, serves you right. You egotistical elite snob. You're having a walk. <laughs> That's what you deserve. Well, the Bible has a way of explaining itself if you go past that one verse. So in order to give a little context, we need to go back a few verses to see what Solomon was really trying to say. The Bible is the best interpreter of itself. And is as much as it sometimes ruins a really good sermon, we should see what the Bible is trying to tell us and not pick and choose verses and read into them. That's called eisegesis, what we want the verse to say. We should let the verse speak for itself. Sometimes studying can actually help you. So let's go back to verse 5, and we're going to read it in the King James and then in the New Living Translation to see what Solomon was really saying because this verse has kind of blown my mind as I've been studying it. There's an evil which I have seen under the sun as an error which proceedeth from the ruler. Here's where the problem lies. The problem is with the guy in charge, the king, the ruler. Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in low place. I have seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. Now, I have the New Living Translation on the screens for you. There's another evil that I have seen under the sun. Kings and rulers make a grave mistake when they give great authority to foolish people and low positions to people of proven worth. I have even seen servants riding horseback like princes and princes walking like servants. Now, whether you like Solomon's perspective or not, he's saying that someone has flipped the culture upside down. The people who should be leading have been kicked out of places of leadership and they're living like slaves. And the people who do not have wisdom, they're foolish. The people that do not have training, the people that don't, do not have a sense of responsibility, they're actually sitting in seats of authority. They're in a place of privilege, riding horseback, serving in the cabinet, so to speak. And in a place of great authority and influence when they really are not bringing anything to the table at all. Now when I read all these verses together, these three verses, 
It's like, hold the phone. That's not what I thought was happening here. This is different than my presupposition of singling out a single verse, verse 7, and thinking that the servant riding on horseback is the hero of the story. This, according to Solomon in this whole passage, is a symptom of a culture that has lost its way and has actually been turned upside down, topsy-turvy, instead of the way it really should be. This is an evil under the sun, Solomon said, and it arises from an error. The evil arises from an error. The root problem is a leader, a ruler, a king who has a lot of authority, but he must be getting bad advice. He makes a single error in judgment in the people that he puts into a position, and as a result of that, it affects his entire realm. He actually undermines his kingdom by making bad decisions. They make a grave mistake to take people of low ability and put them in a position of high authority. That's the problem that Solomon sees in Ecclesiastes 10, 5 through 7. One commentary called these three verses an example story that Solomon gives us. You remember, he's the man that was very observant. He went to a house that was all grown, overgrown with nettles and thorns, and he made some observations and said that this is a result of laziness, that you're going to come to poverty. Solomon didn't just look. He, he saw things. He made observations, and he learned lessons in life. And he must have seen this in a kingdom somewhere where a king made really bad decisions and he had the wrong people seated around him and it affected his entire government, his entire kingdom until finally symptomatic of all the issues in the culture were unproven servants living like princes and people who had the ability to help him lead, living like slaves. It sort of sounds like our culture today. When righteousness has fallen in the streets. When good has become evil, and evil has become good. And this ruler has undermined his kingdom. Now I want to give you some biblical insight, and I have quite a bit to say about this tonight. Proverbs 19.10 Luxury is not fitting for a fool, much less for a servant to rule over princes. Now you have to get out of your head a class view of these passages. It's not about the prince being a better person than the servant, that you know he's high class and this person's low class. But in that culture, if you were a servant, you were trained to be a servant. You did not have the understanding, the training to be a person who was in authority to lead to make wise decisions. And you probably didn't really know how to ride a horse because you've never been on one before. And there are some people that are on their high horse, you know we say, and they don't belong there. Proverbs 3, 21 and 22. 
There are three, this is a New Living Translation. There are three things that make the earth tremble. No, four, it cannot endure. A slave who becomes a king, an overbearing fool who prospers. That's what he kind of sees as part of this, and I just wanted you to see that portion of it. So the first part of the error that that Solomon observes is a king appointing unqualified people to positions of prominence in his kingdom. The second half of what he does wrong is he takes people who have the wisdom and have proven themselves and he puts them in task-oriented menial roles where their wisdom and experience is wasted. They should be in management, but they're not. They have the ability to contribute at a much higher level than they're allowed. And so really you see a lot of wasted potential for people who were princes by upbringing. The country has effectively silenced the voice of wisdom. And you have to ask yourself, how did this happen? How did it happen that the king makes a bad decision? He puts the wrong people in the wrong positions. He takes good, smart trained people and he kicks them out of positions of influence and he assigns them to roles and tasks where they are no benefit to the king. You wonder, was it cronyism or nepotism? Was it just one fool leading another fool? Maybe the king is acting out of pressure instead of principle. Maybe he's got somebody in his ear and he's doing the wrong thing because he's getting bad advice. We don't really know what caused the king to error that led to evil, but regardless, Solomon said that the decision the king made led to consequences in his kingdom. He led maybe, he listened to the wrong voices, made bad decisions, and now, just symptomatic of this culture that is upside down, we've got servants on horses and princes walking like servants. Now there were a couple of other examples in the Bible I want to share with you of kings, people in authority, who made really bad decisions. Jeroboam, the first king of the northern ten tribes, did something very foolish, 1 Kings 13.33. After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again of the lowest of the people, priests of the high places, whosoever he would. He consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places, and this thing became a sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of of the earth. Do you see what Jeroboam did? He took people of low character and he put them as the priests. These people are now the spiritual leaders in the kingdom and he has now turned what should be holy into something unholy and people with no moral character, fiber, or training in ministry Now they're the guys that are preaching the sermons, teaching the lessons, making the sacrifices, leading the people. 
And because Jeroboam doesn't want people going back to Jerusalem to worship, he's got golden calves made. He's made worship convenient. That's really not part of my message tonight. But he's got to have people of low character in high places. He's got servants on horses, so to speak. I mean, he's got princes on foot. That's what Jeroboam did. Rehoboam, who is the son of Solomon, who is the king of really the whole realm at this time, before the kingdom is divided, Rehoboam has Jeroboam I just read to you about. This story is what really kind of sparked the dividing of the kingdom of Israel. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is king. So Jeroboam and the leaders of the kingdom come to Rehoboam and they make an appeal to him. They say, your, son, your father Solomon was really rough on us. High taxes, lots of oppression. He was really a pretty tough king. They said, your father made our yoke, you know, an ox wore a yoke, something that made him plow and stay in line. That's how they saw the authority of the king. It was like a yoke on their neck. Your father made our yoke grievous. And it was a heavy yoke he put on us. And they said, now, Rehoboam, if you will lighten up a little bit, we will be your servants. But we just can't take another, you know, another king who is that harsh and hard on us. So, Rehoboam said, come back in three days and I will give you an answer. So Rehoboam took counsel with the old men that had stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived and asked them, what counsel will you give me to return these people an answer? Now this is interesting to me, that while they served in Solomon's kingdom, they must have never told Solomon this, or if they did, he never listened. They were older men who had lived through the reign of Solomon, and they watched how Solomon's oppressive reign, high taxation, heavy yoke, affected the morale of the people. Now I know the queen of Sheba said, your servants are happy. That must have gotten old as Solomon aged and went after many strange women who turned his heart away from God. So now these same men who were Solomon's counselors look at Rehoboam and they say to him, if you will be kind to these people and please them and speak good words to them, they will be your servants forever. I want you to see this verse. 2 Chronicles 10.8 on the screen. But he, Rehoboam, forsook the counsel which the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men, his peers, that were brought up with him that stood before him. Now, he asked them their advice. What advice will you give me to return to the people. And these young peers of his, who had a lot to gain, who were on the inside, you could say they were kind of like 
servants on horses, they were all of a sudden, by Rehoboam, put in a place to give him strategic counsel that was going to affect the future of his leadership and kingship in Israel. What advice are you going to give me? And the young men who were brought up with him spake unto him, saying, This is what you need to tell these people. Tell them. My father made our yoke heavy, make it somewhat lighter. Let me tell you this. My little finger is going to be thicker than my father's thigh. You think my dad was tough? Wait to see how I rule this kingdom. He said, you think my father's yoke was heavy? He chastised you with whips, but I'm going to chastise you with scorpions. Think Solomon was a tough king? You ain't seen nothing yet. The young men that came up with Solomon, his peers, gave him some really lousy advice, some bad advice. So Jeroboam, on the third day, came back with all the people, and they said, uh, you know, we're here, it's three days later. What is the answer you're going to give us? Rehoboam has heard the advice of older men who are seasoned, trained, deserve to be in a place of authority and leadership and counsel. Rehoboam just kicks all of that advice to the curb, and he answers Jeroboam like this. The Bible said he forsook the counsel of the old men and answered them after the advice of the young men and told them what they said. My father made your yoke heavy. I will add thereto. My father chastened you with whips. I'll chastise you with scorpions. So the king hearkened not unto the people for the cause was of God that the Lord might perform his word which he spake by the hand of Ahiah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nabat. And all of this has to do with the dividing of the kingdom that God said would happen after the death of Solomon. And they said to him, what portion have we to do in David? We're done with you, son of Jesse. We're out of here. Everybody to your tents. And it led to a seismic split in the kingdom of Rehoboam because he listened to the wrong voices in his life. You may think when you make a decision that you can control the consequences, but you cannot. That is one of the underlying lessons of this story about a ruler in Ecclesiastes 10.5 who makes a single decision or maybe a series of decisions about who he surrounds himself with and the advice that they're going to give him, and he sets the wrong people in places of influence, and it has an amazing, terrible effect on his kingdom. The consequences. The poor decisions by the king. And result in people of no understanding being in power. And people who are princes by training, who should be on horseback, who should be in your ear, they are now kind of shunned and put in a place of not being able to speak into your life. And verse 7, when Solomon says, I have seen servants 
upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. It is merely a picture of something that has really gone wrong. That is a culture that is upside down for them. So, we all need to think long and hard about the decisions we make and the consequences that will follow that we cannot control. We can only control the decision. We cannot control the consequences of that decision. Last Wednesday night, I taught on the subject, the long look about making decisions and living in your life with patience and perseverance, that you look down the road, what is going to happen if I do this or say that? What are the consequences of the decision, decision or decisions that I am about to make? One of the things that I said early last week in the introductory comments of that message, remember my youth ministry days, that we want to try to lengthen the context of decision-making that young people make beyond the now. Let them look that kicks have kickbacks. You know, you can't sow wild oats and hope for a crop failure. You've got to think about what is going to happen if I do this. I can control the decision, but I cannot control the consequences of this decision. Every decision that you make is a seed sown to a future harvest. And this king in Ecclesiastes 10 makes a decision, but he doesn't really realize the impact that that decision is going to have on him. It it undermines his entire kingship and the success of his kingdom. So, every decision, even those that may seem inconsequential, have an effect, even though you may not think it matters at all. I was reading this passage over and over, studying it and pondering it, sleeping on it, and I was thinking about what the Bible says about putting people in a place of authority or leadership. Now, I know that all of you are not a pastor, and that's not even the point, but many of us are asked at times to make decisions about people. And who should be in a place of leadership and authority in a business, in, a, in an environment of ministry, or whatever it may be. Look at 2 Timothy 2 and 2. Paul says to Timothy, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Paul says, don't try somebody out in a place of authority to see how they'll do. Let them prove themselves to be faithful, as Jesus says, in little things, and then make them ruler over many things. And I said this last week, that God will always test you before he entrusts you. That is God's way. He humbles you to prove you, to do you good. At the latter end, as Deuteronomy 8 says. So, don't be quick to want the chief seat. Don't grovel to get the gavel to be the chairman of the board. Find a place to serve and be faithful there. 
Amen? And prove yourself. And the Bible says that you need to be careful about who you put in a place of authority and make sure that they are faithful men. And if they are, you teach them, put them in a place of authority, and they will be able to teach others also. Solomon, I love this verse, uh, Proverbs 25, 19. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. You want to choose some food and you can't count on that broken tooth. It's not going to help you when you need it. You need to run from the lion in the street or whatever, but you've got a foot out of joint, and that foot is going to let you down every time. And so is an unfaithful person. That's why at this church, places of ministry, we look at attendance, we look at tithing, we want to know that a person is apostolic in their lifestyle, not because we're just trying to be picky or have fine mesh to the screen, but because we're building on a biblical foundation that God gave us good advice about who to trust and who to not. Now, the Bible gives some specific qualifications for various leadership roles in the church. I want to run through these rather quickly just to kind of give you some insight and understanding. You like to say that if you're in the church, everybody ought to be equal, everybody ought to have the same standard, and uh, nothing more should be exacted of anyone who's in a leadership role, but that is absolutely not the way the Bible says it. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, these verses I'm not planning to, to display, but I'll give them to you if you're jotting notes. They've got a benevolence issue. The Grecian widows are complaining. They need some men to be over kind of a benevolence committee. And the apostles say to the people, look you out among you seven men, three qualifications. They've got to be honest. They have to have an honest report. They need to be full of the Holy Ghost because if you're going to handle people and money, you better be spiritual or you'll backslide. And thirdly, he said they need to have wisdom because these guys are going to have to make judgment calls and decisions. So they need to be, they need to be trusted, honest report. They need to be full of the Holy Ghost and they need to have wisdom to make these decisions. When Paul is giving Timothy qualifications for a deacon. The word deacon is to minister as a slave under obligation. Ministry, that's what ministry is. It is serving. And these deacons don't have as high a criteria as a bishop, but he gives some qualifications. These are not just regular folk that come and go from church. These are people who are going to serve in leadership roles. And he tells them, in essence, they've got to have character. Their conduct needs to be good. Their marriage needs to be sound. Their family needs to be healthy. And they need to have experience if they're going to lead as deacons in the church. Don't put the wrong people in a position that will undermine what you're trying to do. And then, when it comes to bishops, Paul tells Timothy, bishops are even going to have a higher list of things they have to do. Blameless. Husband of one wife. and gives this long list of things. And I've learned that you have to give up to go up. And the person with the fewest rights is a person who's a leader in an organization. You have the fewest rights 
of anybody, anywhere. And if you want to have the most rights to miss church, come and go as you like, do as you please, then you don't have any responsibility, right? No position, no responsibility, and you're your own boss. But if you're going to lead people, you've got to give up personal rights to accept responsibility to be in a place where you can help other people go to heaven. And Ecclesiastes chapter 10 is about a king that did not understand the kind of people that would make him successful as a king. And I don't know what affected him. I don't know if it was the people around him in his ear that said that Joe's a nice guy. You know, like the emperor's people who were telling him, your new clothes are beautiful. No one would tell him the truth. He made a fool of himself. Right? Now, like it or not, this is the reality of leadership. that You need the right people who are qualified to lead. I have this little list that I look at, character. I've changed the order of this for those around me that know this list. Calling, need to have the right calling. Need to have a companion, a spouse that will support you if you're married. Need to have some competence. You need to be good at what you're being asked to do. There needs to be a good team chemistry that you can get along with people. That you can work with other people. And you need to have the capacity to carry a load that's been asked of you because if you can't handle stress and responsibility, you're going to cave in and you're not going to survive. The poor judgment that Solomon observed caused his kingdom to be flipped on its head and to fail. And we should be aware of what is going on in our culture as a result of people in positions a political or corporate leadership who are not qualified to lead. They may lack character. They may not lack competence. But the bad decision to promote a person puts a nation, puts a business, puts a church in peril. Now, Solomon reveals the repulsive results of this poor decision and it's kind of typified by servants on horses and princes walking. The servants who really don't have a place to go or anything to say when they get there have expedited transportations. They're flying the Learjet. But the princes who really have something to say and something to add, they're having to go on foot. Their travel is impeded. They've just kind of kicked them out, left them on the curb. Everybody please say consequences. This king evidently did not anticipate that he would see servants on horses and princes walking when he made that original decision in verse 5. He didn't realize the severe consequences that his kingdom would face. So I want to introduce you to an idea that I learned this past year in a general board meeting with our general superintendent, Brother David Bernard, we're in a discussion about some important decisions for the United Pentecostal Church. And he said this, we need to be aware of the law of unintended consequences. Oh, I had never heard that phrase like that before. I understand exactly what that means. The law of unintended consequences. The king that Solomon wrote about made a decision. He didn't intend 
to have servants on horses and princes walking. That was an unintended consequence. It was something he did not anticipate happening when he made that decision. He didn't realize what was going to happen when he took a bunch of fools and surrounded himself by them. That's exactly what happened that ultimately slaves were riding horseback and servants were walking. So I've been thinking about this and reading about this, and I want to share a story that I read about the law of unintended consequence, or consequences, rather. In 1890, a New Yorker, New Yorker named Eugene Schifflin took his intense love of Shakespeare's Henry VI to the next level. Most Shakespeare fanatics channel their interest by going to the performances of the plays or meticulously analyzing them or reading everything they can about the playwright Shakespeare's life. But Schifflin wanted more. He wanted to look out his window in New York and see the same kind of birds in the sky that Shakespeare wrote about in Henry VI. Wins was inspired by this. And Schifflin initially released 60 birds into the sky. And then 100 birds into the sky. But these birds were starlings. They were not native to North America. They were native to Great Britain. He was hoping that they would survive. And they did. But they did far more than survive. They began to multiply and thrive. And we didn't just act alone. He had the support of scientists and the American Acclimatization Society. And you can imagine him looking out his window at Central Park and watching starlings fly around. And he could envision that in Shakespeare's Henry VI. And he thought that was the coolest thing ever. But there is the law of unintended consequences. His plan worked far too well. These starlings multiplied exponentially, spreading across America at an astonishing rate. Today, they don't even know how many starlings live in the United States, but official estimates range from 45 million to over 200 million of these hardy little birds that are muscular and they are bossy and brave and they take over my wife's bird feeders, bird feeder, and they are the one of the only birds like this that is unprotected in America. You can kill them as many as you want, and they have wiped out hundreds of thousands of them, and it doesn't even seem to put a dent in their population. All from some guy thinking, wouldn't it be cool to be able to look out my window and see some of those starlings flying around in Central Park? But there is the law of unintended consequences. They say that starlings wreak, wreak havoc. They were not natural to our ecosystem. They spread diseases. They even go to where cattle feed and they, they pick out the best feed out of there and 
It even affects cattle. You know, these guys are really terrible birds, destroying crops and all of that. And they actually cost millions and millions of dollars a year, and they even are one of the worst type of birds to cause fatal airplane crashes, and there's a history behind that as well as as spreading diseases. The law of unintended consequences. Every decision has consequences. Some of them are unintended. Some of them are unanticipated. When Ryan was a little boy, we had a friend who had a couple girls who were older than, than Ryan was, and Joel may have been a baby at this time. And he told me something that he did that he thought was the coolest thing. He said, you know, this was back in the days when people actually read physical magazines, you know. He said, if we're at home and we're reading a magazine and we come across an ad for alcohol or nicotine, he said, I have my girls just rip that out of the magazine. And I thought, how cool is that? Back then, I used to take U.S. News and World Report. And I remember sitting up in the bed, thumbing through U.S. News and World Report and saying, look, Ryan, this is bad drink, and ripping the page out of U.S. News and World Report. But there is a law of unintended consequences. I created a focus on ads like that. That Ryan could not wait to flip through the magazine and tear out all the ads. He was actually looking for the very thing I didn't want him to know about. There is a law of unintended and sometimes unanticipated consequences. Jesus gave us some advice about this in the book of Luke, chapter 14. I'll show you these verses on the screen. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first? You might want to say that to yourself right now. Sit down first. Don't lunge out there and start throwing up bricks or sticks or whatever you want to build your tower out of. Sit down first and count the cost. Whether whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, let me give you the context of this. Uh, It was in my notes, but I kind of got right to the verse. Jesus was talking about discipleship. That before you take up your cross and follow me, you need to think long and hard about this because there's a cost of being a Christian. I know that salvation is free, and it is worth it, and no man has ever given up houses, lands, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, or his own life also for the kingdom of God's sake, who will not receive many fold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. It is worth it, but there is a cost. And Jesus said, sit down first, figure out whether you've got what it takes to finish this Christian race, this tower that you're going to build. Because if you start it and you don't finish it, you're going to be a joke. And then he gives another example. 
or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first. Everybody please say sit down first. To see you're trying to not make the mistake of the king in Ecclesiastes 10 who just made an error that led to evil. He considers whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Now that seems like a pretty easy math question, right? I've got 10,000 men, they have 20,000 men. Maybe we better think about this before we dive off into war. Maybe my guys are better armed. Maybe they're better trained. Maybe they're more fierce. Maybe we're more strategic. Maybe we have a better plan than they do. Maybe we can do this. But let's sit down first and think it through. Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. He waves the white flag. And he says, you know what, we're not going to go lose this battle. We'll find a way to negotiate a peace treaty, and we'll have a settlement here. So here's what I want you to see of these two examples that Jesus gave in the context of the law of unintended or unanticipated, either one, consequences. You don't want to wake up one day and find out That what you were trying to do, you actually undid or undermined by listening to the wrong voice, by making the wrong decision, by acting in haste or being rash, not thinking about what you're doing and becoming a fool, really. There's a lot of abandoned construction projects. There's a lot of defeated armies in the world. Because of the consequences of not sitting down first and asking yourself the question, where does this go? For example, have any of you ever heard of kudzu? Kudzu. Kudzu seemed like a really good idea at the time. During the 1930s in the Dust Bowl, the federal government recommended plans that would limit soil erosion. Kudzu had been introduced, some sources say Asia generally or Japan specifically, at the 1876 Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia, and it was a well-behaved ornamental vine for decades. But no one ever thought about what would happen if we planted it in the south where you don't have a lot of frost. So the government encouraged and even paid farmers to plant kudzu for a number of years before they realized the law of unintended consequences, unanticipated consequences. Down here in the south, it can grow up to a foot a day. And in 1971, they waved the white flag and called it a weed. Some call kudzu the plant that ate the South. (laughs) The law of unintended or unanticipated consequences 
where servants are on horseback and princes are walking. Bad decision that leads to something you did not plan. So, a couple of thoughts. Well, sounds to me like it makes sense to stop, sit down first, right? Pray, study, get good advice. Before you launch out and make a decision that you've really not thought through, maybe you're listening to the wrong people, the voices that Rehoboam allowed to speak into his life that undermined his entire kingdom and divided Israel. Consider how you make your decisions. Do you make your decisions based on political correctness? Do you make your decisions based on friendships? Do you make decisions under the pressure of people? Do you play to the applause of men, as the Bible says? Are you trying to prove something to someone, and so you're forcing something that doesn't really feel right inside, doesn't, isn't really principled, but you're trying to make it work? Like Abraham and Sarah trying to make the will of God happen by bringing Hagar into the picture that produces Ishmael, who was not the promised son. And boy, they made it happen, and they've been paying for it ever since. You need to think about this when you make any decision. What do you allow in your home? Who do you allow in your life? The course you chart has a chain reaction of unintended and unanticipated consequences. So when you reel this all back, you see that a king made a decision or a series of decisions that led to something he had no idea what ever happened to him. So, look at our culture today. And the societal damage that has resulted by poor judgment and bad decisions. I mentioned politicians and corporations caving into the vocal, well-funded fringe of our society making really bad decisions because of the immoral minority. At the end of the day today, I was thinking about this. And I thought about the Boy Scouts of America. We used to have a vibrant Boy Scout troop here. But because of their decision to change their values about who could be a leader, they're now on the verge of bankruptcy because no faith-based organization wants to be connected to some organization like that and expose our young boys to a potential pedophile. The law of unintended consequences. And in the news this week, I will leave it unnamed because the outcome is still unfolding. Perhaps another corporate Christian-friendly organization 
has made a bad decision. We shall wait and see. But all I can tell you is that there are pressures in our lives and we will either live by principles and priorities or we will live by these pressures on us. And the Bible said that in the end time, because iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold. The pressure will be on. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. The only people who are anchored in the Word of God in a fundamental relationship with Jesus Christ, not just as Savior, but as Lord of their lives, are going to be standing when it is all said and done. Jesus said in John 7, 24, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. The New Living Translation says, Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. In other words, really just weigh this out. Judge righteous judgment. And as you stand, I want to read our text again. Ecclesiastes 10, 5-7. I will read it in the New Living Translation. There is another evil I have seen under the sun. Kings and rulers make a grave mistake when they give great authority to foolish people and low positions to people of proven worth. I have even seen servants riding horseback like princes and princes walking like servants. Who knows where our decisions go when we do not make them according to the proven principles of the Word of God. Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will never pass away. The Bible said, Let God be true and every man a liar. Though everyone on this planet would vote against something that God said was true, and the pop culture and the, the status quo, and everybody would weigh in and say that this is right, but if God's word says that something different is right, stand on the word of God. Otherwise, you will be the victim of unintended consequences in your life. If you have time, would you join me at the altar and I told Brother Brandon Cowden today, have fun finding a song to go with this message. So he can just play random chords if that's easier. I want us to come opening up our heart to God. And making a decision tonight to do the right thing regardless of the consequences. Years ago, studying convictions or preferences, I read three qualifications of a conviction. It must not change. It must be consistent. And it must be seen in your life. But a conviction is a principle of the Word of God that we have applied to our life personally. And a conviction is a principle of Scripture that we have purposed to follow whatever the cost as a follower of Jesus Christ we follow him to the place of death that's what the cross is all about and we take up our cross daily to follow him so why don't we pray and ask God to give us the fortitude the courage 
to do the right thing so that we make wise decisions and we lead our lives and our families in this church into the favor of God and his blessing on us. Because though man tries to curse you, if God chooses to bless you, nothing can stop God from blessing you. So do not be afraid to stand for truth and do the right thing because nothing can stop the blessings of God when his favor is on your life. Let's pray right now, Lord.